0: I'm with Lionel Lamb Ministries, and welcome to another episode of Insight into Isaiah. We are deep into the book, and in fact, uh, in this program, we're going to be starting with Isaiah chapter 64. Uh, let me do just a touch review to get it connected. Uh, in our last uh, teaching in chapter 63, one of the uh, things that I tried to show you in that was that Isaiah was setting this stage for talking about the kingdom and talking about the return of the Lord and the, the end time events by making this illusion of something wonderful that was going to take place. And I used that example from that movie, uh, Something Wonderful is Going to Happen. And he used some illusions to try to explain what the wonderful is. But unbelievers and those who are uh... not tracking with the lord have no idea about this wonderful thing and furthermore they they can't grasp it let me echo that just a little bit further uh... with another example as we go into our chapter sixty four i remember um, as a young man when i first came to faith and i was a grown man at that point um, and i went out with some other brethren And we were, in fact, we were in San Diego at the time, and we went out partly for training, but it was to learn how to share our faith. We went out and did street evangelism, and that's where you go out on the street and you meet people randomly, and you get a dialogue going with them, and they bring the subject to spiritual things, and you try to share the Lord with them. And I remember um, going out with a group of guys and doing this, and we ran into a guy who was one of these street salesmen that was with a store that was down there and in those days as you walk up and down while the salesman would stand outside the door and try to get the dialogue going with you going down the street to get you in the store to buy something just like we were trying to dialogue with people and talk about the Lord he's out there trying to sell I think jewelry or something and so we ran into the guy so he's willing to talk to us we're willing to talk to him And as we began to share the topic with him that we wanted to talk about the Lord, the guy kind of seized on the moment. And he said, I remember he said, Hey, guys, maybe you can answer a a very specific question for me. And we went, Oh, boy, you know, he's going to ask a question that will open the dialogue. Great. And he said, Tell me what heaven is like. (laughs) You know, I mean, if you believe in Jesus and you die, you go to heaven so tell me what heaven's like and while I was kind of a brand new believer and there was no expectation on my part to answer any serious theological questions here I am with a couple other men who are my teachers and uh, so so the, it, we're looking to them to answer and um, they couldn't answer they couldn't answer what it was I have learned since that there's a reason why they couldn't answer. And the reason is that when we die, we don't go to heaven like what has been described by the church. Uh, The next stop for us, brethren, is that when you're resurrected, you're not leaving the earth. You're just going to be raised up into the clouds. You're going to come to rest there in Jerusalem, and the Lord's coming to us. We're not going up in beyond the stars up into the heavens. The whole heaven thing is something that was created by the church to replace the idea that there's still going to be a millennial kingdom. And it's only the evangelical Christian movement that has pushed for millennialism. And by the way, the teaching of the, the Messiah rules for a thousand years, it's called millennialism. And not everybody in Christianity has believed that. That's a, a relatively recent thing going back just a couple of generations that they actually have looked at the scriptures and believed the Lord's coming back here going to establish his kingdom. And the next stop for us is to go there and not the escalator ride up into the clouds, up there with Cupid shooting arrows, you know, and so forth. And, you know, uh, it struck me at that time that, my goodness, if we don't even know where we're going, well, what are we really sharing with people when we're sharing with them the the gift of eternal life? We're trying to explain how good eternal life would be. We, we, We don't seem to have any concept of what this thing really is. And part of what Isaiah is doing here is he's trying to impart to us that this wonderful goal, this place where we're going to end up going with the Messiah is going to be a wonderful place. He's going to be there with us. That, and there's a whole series of descriptions that he kind of touches on. The other prophets do the same thing. And that study and learning those things is mind-boggling. Uh, compared to the oversimplified thing, oh, we just all go off to heaven. Um, if you hear a person say, oh, we're going to go off to heaven, you might suggest to them um, that's not really what the Bible says. I know that's what religious people say. And I know we have a whole bunch of religious humor jokes about going to heaven and the pearly gates and talking to angels and doing goofy things. But that's not what the scripture teaches That's not what the prophets of Israel have explained to us. That is not what the resurrection is about. There is a kingdom in which the Messiah is going to rule on this earth. We're going to live with him for a thousand years. And then we go off into eternity. Now, what exactly is that eternity after that? God only knows. You know, he has not manifested and revealed that other than to say it's eternity with him. So he's talking about these elements, and if we don't get a grasp on what is really the next stop, you know, after he resurrects us and we have the day of the Lord and the judgment of the world and he begins to rule and reign from Jerusalem, if we don't get a sense of that, it can distort what we do right now. Uh, It's always been a paradox for me how a lot of uh, premillennial evangelical Christians believe that we're in the church age, and then when we get to the great tribulation, then God turns his attentions back to Israel, and then we have the 144,000 sons of Israel, and then he's going to rule from Jerusalem, and somehow that, you know, that we go from the church as a separate thing, and then we go to this Israel thing toward the end, and then, then we have the Messiah and the millennial kingdom, and How does the church make it into that? Or is the church even part of that? And they don't have a very good answer for that. And one of the questions that I have posed, you know, to try to bring some perspective to this, to try to understand is this. We know at the end of the millennial kingdom, you know, that point when we really shift into eternity, the book of Revelation tells us about that the Messiah is going to bring a new city the new Jerusalem, and that we're all going to dwell there with the Lord. And he tells us there's 12 gates, and the gates are named after the tribes of Israel. And I point out to people, there's no Gentile gate. There's no Presbyterian, Baptist, Catholic gate. The 12 tribes of Israel, if you don't go through a gate... Associated with one of the tribes of Israel, you will not be in New Jerusalem. You somehow have to relate to god 's definition of the kingdom being Israel, and there is no other option for that in other words there's there's not church gates there 's israel gates and which tells me that uh, Maybe this whole Israel thing that got started way back with Moses and so on, maybe that didn't really end. Because I know He's definitely going to make the focus of it in the Great Tribulation, and it's definitely going to be the focus even after that in the Millennial Kingdom. So why do we have this little parenthetical interruption called the Church in the midst of it? It doesn't line up with Scripture. Now, for those of you who are thinking, oh, well, Monty's just really lambasting and going hard after the church. No, I am not. I'm trying to tell you about the wonderful thing the prophets say is going to happen. And for you to understand that wonderful thing, you better be paying attention to what God first started when he started dealing with his people. And you're not going to understand these wonderful things. You're not going to get the real plan, and you're not going to see how you fit into the plan unless you go back to, as in the last portion we talked about, you start thinking about where's the God that led Moses? Where's the God that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea? Because that's the God that's going at doing this, and that's the God who's been ruling and reigning the whole time. And how man has defined themselves in their relationship with God, quote, the church, that is not the plan. God has plan A, which is his kingdom named Israel, and there is no plan B when he decides that he's going to scatter Israel and punish them for their unbelief and then planning on bringing them back. He still loves Israel, still remembers Israel and that's what Isaiah and the prophets all tell us about and it's what's called the final redemption as I shared with you last time. Now that's a review a little bit and sets the stage now when we come to chapter 64. In chapter 64 Isaiah is going to slip back now, and he's going to talk to some of his brethren in the day that they're with him in Isaiah's day. So let's pick up here at chapter 64, verse 1, and we'll see how he carries on this discussion that we've been talking about. Verse 1, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains might quake at thy presence as fire kindles the brushwood or as fire uh, causes water to boil, to make thy name known to thy adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst awesome things which we did not expect, thou didst come down and mountains quaked at thy presence. He's literally calling on, Oh, God, if you could come down here and make your presence known by shaking the mountains and 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 doing your big grand entry and it, this all of this could be reconciled and he's absolutely right and by the way you may have heard believers before in talking about some of the struggles that we have today boy wouldn't it be good if the lord could come back yeah i'd love to have him come back in this nonsense that's going on here called the world. It would be so much better for us. Well, that's essentially what Isaiah is referring to here. And he says a very interesting statement. I want you to take note of this verse. For from old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has seen as the eye seen a God besides thee, who acts in behalf of those who waits for him. Hmm. That's an interesting comment about God, about those who understand versus what God is doing, those that understand as opposed to those who don't understand. Now, you may not be aware of this, but the Apostle Paul thought that was a very profound statement. He thought it explained a lot about those who believe and those who don't believe, He thought that statement is about how do we perceive, how do we learn about things of God. And basically, it came down to this. You cannot learn the things of God unless the Spirit of God assists you in doing it. Your natural eye doesn't have the ability to see certain things He wants you to see. Your natural ears don't have the capability to hear certain things God really wants to say to you or can say to you. You don't even have the heart that can imagine some of this stuff that God's telling us. Let's see if this be true in your case. As we've gone through this book of Isaiah, how many of you have struggled just a little bit when I have pointed out, oh, this is a passage about the Messiah. Oh, this is a passage about the kingdom that we'll, we'll be in and we'll be a part of. And you're kind of trying to grasp it, and it's just kind of just beyond your sight. It's just just beyond your hearing, just beyond your capacity to kind of understand it. It's kind of there, but you just can't quite reach it. And if you'd have been reading this by yourself, you, you probably wouldn't have seen it. You probably wouldn't have heard it that way, so my coming to you and teaching you the book of Isaiah let's just be open and honest here um, What are you really doing Monty? I mean, when you come and teach this are you, are you, did you do some big exhaustive bible study on this and and so you're laying out stuff uh, you know on this you you're about ready to write a big commentary on the book of Isaiah or whatever. By the way, if you go read commentaries on the book of Isaiah, they're not going to tell you what this book is saying. They just rattle off little tidbits of facts about certain key verses and explaining certain names and words and phrases. The message that Isaiah is trying to communicate to the people, you cannot receive this message without the Spirit of God and without understanding certain things that God has already manifested and correlate it and that is the point of this verse by the way the Apostle Paul took direct application to this and taught us a very very profound lesson in the New Testament let me take you to first Corinthians chapter um, two. he's talking to the Corinthian believers and he suddenly is going to explain how did he teach and how did he share the information about the gospel and the Messiah and and about redemption and all these wonderful future things that are going to be happening with the Messiah and and him being the king of kings. And he's he's trying to explain the kingdom to them and so forth. and, And he stops and he says, let's examine what I've been trying to do with you about telling you about the gospel. And so he starts off in chapter 2 verse 1 and he says this. And when I came to you brethren at night I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't use superiority of speech or of wisdom. I wasn't clever. I didn't come to you with a clever way of doing it. I didn't come to you um, because I have a bigger vocabulary and I could give very complex thinking into just one or two short sentences to you. In other words, I didn't have superiority of speech. I didn't do that. So what in the world did he do? So he goes on to say, verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except you sure the Messiah, him crucified. I focused on one thing. I want you to understand who the Messiah is and why was he crucified. What does it mean by his death? How does that make the redemption? How, how, does that, how is that the good news? He wanted, he focused in on, by the way, let me make a recommendation to all the different teachers in the messianic movement, rather than chasing off every one of your rabbit trails on all different kinds of weird, goofy issues, maybe you could follow Paul's counsel and let's get back to talking about the Messiah and the work of redemption he's done. Let's get back to that because the people that are coming out of the church, that's what they need. They have a distorted idea of what the gospel is and what the Messiah has done and how it happened. And let's go back and teach them and so we can prove that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and that he's done the work of redemption and that we have a future and a hope in him for his kingdom. Let's get back to maybe the focused thing, which is what Paul is saying that he determined to do. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He said, hey, I'm a mortal like you guys. I'm no Superman. I don't have any personal super capabilities. I'm just a guy like you, but that I came to, and this was my focus. And then he says, verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Meaning, I was a vessel and God used me to speak to you. That's what a prophet is. He's a fourth teller. He turns his heart over, he turns his mouth over to God, and the Spirit of God moves in him and he speaks forth the things of God. And so you teach the people to learn to listen to the Lord, not a man. The people that follow the Apostle Paul, he's saying, It's not because I'm I'm a better speaker that I have a better approach. Or, for that matter, that I'm handsome, or I sing well in the shower, or whatever it might be. Those those aren't the things. And may I submit to you that if you responded to some of my past teachings, it's not because I'm a great orator. I I mispronounce words all the time, and sometimes, you know, I do a lot of extemporaneous speech, and every once in a while I'll get a sentence going, and it just goes nuts. And then I have to read back up and, and say it again. I, I'm, it's not because I'm clever or that I'm the greatest orator. I'm never going to write uh, the Gettysburg Address. All I'm doing is trying to repeat to you what the Lord has said. And the power of what God has said is what you're responding to, not me. And that's what Paul is trying to say. Paul's trying to say, it's really the power of God that's working in your hearts, working in your minds, so that you can grasp it. It's not me. And he goes on to say this. Verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, which are passing away. He's saying... I want to make sure you understand, there is something very wise about what we're talking about, but it's not the wisdom of the world. And it's not the wisdom of the smartest people in the world. It doesn't come from that. And he goes on to say, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Well, that's interesting. That's a wonderful word. I'll come back to that. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Whoa. You mean God knew about all of this even before the earth was? Even before there was man on the earth? The answer is yes. And part of that has been set up to our glory. Now, wait a minute. I've got to tell you something. You can go through this whole Bible, and it appears here, there's one thing you'll find consistent. All glory belongs to God. But here he says, no, there is something hidden, something wonderful in what God is doing here that's to your glory. That you're going to be a part of him in the kingdom. And not only is he glorious, you're going to be glorious right along with him. Something wonderful is going to be happening to you. Now that's terrific, isn't it? Isn't that terrific? So... Here's what he says. Verse 9. But just as it is written, things which I have not seen and ear have not heard, all which have not entered into the heart of man, all the things that God has prepared for those that love him. You know what he just quoted? He just quoted Isaiah um, 64. That verse, let me take you back there. Isaiah 64, verse 4. For from old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye seen a God besides thee, who acts on behalf of those who waits for him. If you compare this verse back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it shows you Paul was getting it as to what Isaiah has been preaching here. That there's this incredible contrast, sinners, blinded that they have moved away from God, they've done a very foolish thing why is it they haven't grasped what God has been doing, how he's been manifesting himself, why have they turned away from all that, why have they ignored all of that, and and don't they even take stock of their situation it's terrible that they're in and he says why don't you get a grasp on who God is, look at what he's done It's the basis of believing him. It's the basis of trusting him. Let's see. Uh, God has led the children of Israel uh, through the Red Sea. Can I have confidence in God that he knows how to deal with water? Yes, I should have confidence in God. If I ever run into a situation where there's water, then God knows about water and he knows how to take care of the situation about water. If he intends to do good to me, it'll be okay. Or any of the other assortment of things, dealing with enemies, dealing with those that would want to harm you, struggles for having survival, enough food, enough to drink, and so he's, he's solved those problems before. Occasionally, you'll hear testimonies. About people who were in accidents or near accidents or tragedies that took place, and that somebody stands up in the midst of it and says, In the midst of this whole thing that was going on, God delivered me. It was a miracle. Somebody got a sickness, a disease. It, was, it, it, it looked like there was no hope. And yet they come back with a testimony and say, God, God healed me. I don't have that problem anymore. I, you know, he's done that. We have multiple testimonies that are going on all the time that this God who is back there with Israel leaving Egypt, he's still here with us today, still working and helping us. But do we believe in him? Do we believe that he can help you? If you hesitate on that, you don't really believe what he did. You've not yet processed the evidence of his testimony. You, you, you've, you, you're not grasping the evidence that you have the way this question was. The evidence is overwhelming as to who God is, what his purposes are how we fit into the plan. And that's what we should be absorbing. And I understand at the moment uh, where you're at, if you can't see it, you can't hear it, your heart just can't grasp it, you know what that's telling you? That you have not yet achieved the relationship with God that he wants you to have. You're coming up short. May I make a recommendation to you? You need to go back and ask the Lord, I want to know you that well. I want to know you, Lord. I want to know the God that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. I want to know the God of the burning bush. I want to know the God that came down on Mount Sinai and burned up the top of the mountain and spoke his commandments. I want to know that God. I want to know the God that will be returning to this earth in great power and glory and has the skill and ability to raise people from the dead. I want to have a relationship with that God. And I want that God and I to get along so well that no matter where my path leads me in my life, that that God is with me. And he's a part of my life and that he knows me, and that he loves me, and we have this kind of good relationship. That's what you should be seeking. and That's what you should be looking for. You should be looking for something that's beyond what your eyes can see, that is beyond what your ears can hear, beyond even what you can imagine. And we're talking about the things of the Spirit and the real power of God to get to know those things. That's the context. That's the deeper insight that Isaiah is trying to share here, this contrast between those who believe and those who don't. He goes on to say, verse five, Thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers thee in thy ways. Behold, thou wast angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there's no one who calls on thy name, who arouses him to take a hold of thee. For thou dost hidden thy face from us, and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. That's what happens when you sin and you get separated from God. Instead of having the power of God in your life, you have the power of your sin. And by the way, the power of your sin is able to kill you. The soul that sins dies. You're just in the process of a slow death if you're living in your sins. It's going to catch up with you eventually. That's the reason why mortals die. Because our father Adam... Introduced sin and darkness in the world and brought death into the world. That was never God's plan. And that's the reason why we got a problem. And the reason that we got to turn that around is that we got to get a God who can defeat death and defeat sin, get rid of sin and get rid of the results of sin so that we can live. And thus, that's the question where we're at. That's the reason why we have a gospel. That's the reason why we exhort people to come to know the Lord. That's the reason why we try to share our faith with other people. is because that's what's hanging in the balance for every person's life that comes into this world, into this time that we're in. So let's look a little bit more. Verse 8. But now, Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, thou art our potter. And all of us are the work of thy hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are thy people. The holy city has become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, when our Father praised thee, has been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. Wilt thou restrain thyself at these things, O Lord? Wilt thou keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? Part of the sin that Israel did brought about the destruction of the temple, God's house. As the caretakers of the temple, as we began to sin, we allowed it to fall into ruin and be subject to the hands of our enemies. And the same is true about our lives. Um, If we're not a good caretaker and we're not doing what the Lord has instructed us to do, we're just doing something else, then we're going to bring destruction on our own house, we're going to bring destruction on ourselves, our families. And we'll just endure harm. That's not what the Lord wants. And so there's a call here that says, Lord, even though we're in the midst of this, don't take it all the way to the full measure of what we deserve. Be merciful to us. Uh, we, we know that we're responsible for it. But by your loving kindnesses, by your work of redemption... Lord, come and restore us, reestablish us, build your house again, Uh, change our hearts, get us on a different path with you. That's the only way we're going to be able to live. And there's a reality that comes in when we come to terms with that. That's how you see people repent. That's how you see them turn their lives around. They realize that if I continue in this path, it leads to my death. It's not going to be good. I'll give it a chance. I'll I'll try the Lord. I don't quite understand all that he's doing, but it's got to be better than this. And a lot of us come to the Lord exactly in that thinking. And now it's let's follow through. Let's learn all the wonderful things. Let's learn the good things. Let's strengthen and establish ourselves in our walk, our personal intimate walk with the Lord. And that's essentially what what Isaiah is alluding to. That's what he's trying to 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 uh, share with the people. He's trying to motivate them, stimulate them, even in his day. As you know historically, that after Isaiah, the people still didn't heed the message. And um, and that as a result, why the temple was destroyed, and the house of Judah was scattered, and. Um, That was, I'm I'm remembering a certain statement that the Messiah said. He made reference to Isaiah. And he said, truly, in his day, he said, truly, Isaiah spoke of you people. You know, we don't want Isaiah to speak of us that way. Uh, We want Isaiah to speak of us as being that servant of the Lord that goes into the kingdom and gets to be a part of the big wonderful thing of his kingdom. And we're found faithful as his servants. that That's what we want Isaiah to say of us. Not what Isaiah has said of other brethren. Who turned away from the Lord. All right. We have enough time. We're going to get started into chapter 65. We only have two chapters left, and I'm going to try to stage this so that um, uh, the next episode will pick up here and probably bring us to a conclusion on our study of Isaiah. So let's jump into chapter 65 a little bit. He says this, um, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to the nation which did not call on my name. That's when the gospel went to the Gentiles. Paul is very intimately familiar with this passage of Scripture. And he got the vision that because of the rejection of the Messiah and because of this long history of Israel disobeying the Lord, he knew the gospel was to go to the nations. And so guess what he did? He said, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to take this good word, and I'm going to go out and share it with the Gentiles. And by the way, that's the reason why he shared that Isaiah 64 verse in 1 Corinthians 2.9 to a bunch of Corinthian Christians. He knew the message was extending out and God was going to permit those who had not sought him before to find him and that he would announce to them, Here am I. I'm here. So that we they uh, could accept. And that's the reason why the gospel and and uh, the testimony of Yeshua exploded to all over the world. It wasn't just some messiah for israel when the messiah came and did the work of redemption the apostle paul certainly had the vision he knew this he saw what the prophet isaiah had said it exploded and went to the whole world and there are many non-jews who come to know messiah yeshua and have chosen him, and turned away from other dark things and other sinful things that were doing in the nations, and they turn back to learn the ways of the Lord. You do realize of course that this has provoked unbelievable jealousy on the part of my Jewish brethren. they would love to have the Messiah I mean they're the people of the of the Messiah that the Messiah's promised and and here Gentiles and the rest of the nations get to have him, and they don't have him. And, and, you know, if you're in that situation, that's got to be embarrassing. So the only way you can get through that is not to admit that you made a mistake. You just got to act like, well, that's not my Messiah. That may be your Messiah, but it's not my Messiah. There's only one Messiah. There's not two, There's not a Gentile Messiah and a Jewish Messiah. There's one Messiah. There's one salvation for all people. And... um It's only uh, the church and Judaism that came up with the separation and difference of it. The church came up with it because they didn't want anything to do with the Jews. And quite honestly, the Jews didn't want anything to do with them. So even though we're talking from the same book and the same prophets and the same God, it can't be the same. They've got to make it different. There was a... um, I saw an interesting uh, um, program not too long ago uh, where there was this uh, Jewish guy. In fact, he was, I believe, a Reform rabbi. By the way, when I say Reform rabbi, I'm talking about a very, very liberal thinking religious Jew. Um, my mentor, Brother Eliezer Erbach, who kind of had an Orthodox background, And he became a believer, and he mentored me as a young man. I remember the day he sat down with me, and he said, Monty, I want to clear something up for you. I said, okay, brother. And he said, "Um, there is no such thing as Reformed Jews. There are some Deformed Jews, but there's no Reformed Jews. And it was his commentary on how wild they can get in their thinking. And I've met some of them and talked with them, and believe you me, you would be shocked to know what they really think. Anyways, there's this conversation between this conservative Christian, and they're really talking about politics, they're really talking about social issues, and this Reform rabbi. And the Reform rabbi is trying to tell this Christian that you don't understand what we Jews believe in and and all that kind of stuff. And he kept making that argument, you don't understand. You don't understand how we view God. You don't understand how we view all the different teachings and theologies about God and so forth. And finally, this conservative Christian guy, he finally stopped him and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I read the same book you read. It's still the same book. It's still the same God. Uh, but your definition of what you believe about God may be different from mine. But don't tell me I don't understand that, that, uh, who your God is because I have the same God. And I use the same reference text, you know, with regard to understanding God. The, um, that always, uh, that, that really penetrated me and, and stuck with me about how, That the issues, the spiritual issues that Israel has gone through historically, we're going through the same ones. And by the way, the solution that we found for us is the same solution for them. It's the same God, same spirit, same teaching, same Bible, you know. We have the same things. And so when I sit down and talk with a, a... unbelieving jew he's the same as me i used to be an unbelieving jew i know i don't really and when i sit down and talk with a gentile he's not a believer just like i wasn't a believer because i don't know if you know this or not but the only distinction that the bible ever gives in all of mankind is there's believers and unbelievers it, it There's some tribes, there's some nations, there's a little culture and other things, but it really comes down to who's a believer and who's not a believer. And that's what it really comes down to. If we could overcome that issue, if we could, all of us become believers, a lot of issues that we have going on would all sort themselves out. We're all on the same page. We're all following what the same God said uh, for us. Um, This is going to, it talks about we're in the midst of all of this mess and we we don't have a solution unto ourselves and so forth. Verse 2, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way that is not good following their own thoughts of people who continually provoke me to my face offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks who sit among the graves and spend the night in secret places who eat swine's flesh Uh, by the way you might want to mark that one Um, God is saying the people who are not really his people the people that he's trying to get them to repent One of the things that you'll see about them is they eat pigs. I know lots of people who claim to be believers, and they eat pig. You probably wouldn't like what Isaiah has to say here. He doesn't call it pig. He calls it swine's flesh. That sounds a little bit disgusting, doesn't it? Because it is disgusting. The ability to not see that is disgusting tracks exactly with your ability to not see the things about God and the testimony that he wants you to have. You are that far back from what he has as a goal for you in your relationship with him. Uh, uh, Continuing verse 4, And the broth of unclean meat is in your pots. Hmm. That's disgusting. Did did that hit you as being disgusting? As you read that, did you say, oh, my God, that's disgusting. Because somebody who knows the commandments and somebody who's following the Lord, this is a very derogatory thing to be said. It's terrible. Whereas others would go, oh, I don't have a problem with that. You don't have a problem with this kind of sin. You don't have a problem with being in this kind of spiritual muck. You're a lot farther away from the Lord than you realize. Verse 5. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Did you know... That I went to California once, got an opportunity to share with a group of people. And when I met the director of this particular ministry that we were visiting, and he found out I was a messianic believer, you know what he said to me? he obviously didn 't like what I was getting ready to share, and he says, "Oh, i can 't believe you 're into that clean and unclean stuff and all of that clean and you know and, and i 'm into evangelism and, and, and getting people saved i don 't worry about all that stuff, and i 'm not going to bother people with all that stuff." And it was like he was basically he said, "You keep that stuff to yourself i don 't want to hear that any from you, and besides that, i 'm holier than you." I'm really tracking with the Lord. You're caught up in old things. That was, that was the message he was saying to me. The rest of the verse says, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. That night, when I got my 15 minutes to share... I shared a couple of simple things that I didn't have a real long time to talk. About, so I just shared a couple of simple things. And in front of everybody, he said to me, he said, Monty he said, Look, he said, What are you claiming is truth? I mean, anybody can take any verse and twist and turn it into something they wanted to say and 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 so you know so the, the you know, what it what you know, your definition isn't my definition of truth and and so forth. And that's when the Spirit of the Lord came up on me. And I announced to him and I said you're right. There is no truth in your life, and you wouldn't be able to know the truth. They came up and kissed you. And you want to know why? Is because your heart is filled with darkness and wickedness. And there is no light in your soul. And yet, you claim you're a leader. You're a blind man leading blind people because you don't know the truth. And I think that was the reason why the Lord had me go there to teach. And I put it in a nutshell there I've had many many people come up and and spiritually try to cast me off with a couple of quick phrases I, I remember one fellow he came up and said well I'm sticking with the apostle Paul Paul he wasn't for the law you know read read Galatians I, I'm sticking with Paul and I responded to him and I said brother <laughs> the apostle Paul is not sticking with you I don't know where you're sticking with him. And besides that, the Apostle Paul is sticking with the Messiah. And you should be sticking to the Messiah instead of sticking to a man. That's how distorted the thinking gets. That's how blinded they become as a result of these things. And by the way, we as brethren, as we begin to walk in the light and in the truth, and we begin to see these things about what the Messiah's great plan is and how his redemption works and so forth. You Stop thinking that you're going to go out and exuberantly share this with some of your previous brethren that you were in the faith with and they're just going to jump all over this and love you for it they're not they're going to say to you i don't want to talk to you get get out of my sight paul teaches this in second corinthians he says that when we go out and we're walking in the lord that we cast off a fragrance To those that know the Lord, it's the fragrance of life. But to those who are in rebellion with the Lord, it's the fragrance of death and judgment. And the reason why you're going to go out and share your faith and messianic things with some of your Christian friends and they're going to reject you is because, quite honestly, you're going out and you're stinking the place up for them. And they're going to respond to you like you're casting off on a very offensive body odor. In fact, they may even say the following thing. They may listen to you a little bit and then walk over to a friend of theirs and say, Did you get a whiff of that guy? Because they'll treat you like you stink. And by the way, you do. You're casting off the fragrance of life. And that's the reason why when you run into somebody who's a fellow believer, you hit it off so well. There's a sweet fragrance. There's this sweet spirit between you. But those who are unbelievers, this is very offensive to them. Very offensive. Especially those who eat swine flesh. What we're talking about here is not sweet fragrance to them. It's a fragrance of judgment. I've always told people humorously for many many years do not think because I question or challenge you on eating pork and pork products that I'm somehow passing judgment on you I, st- I believe you can eat all the pork you want and you will still go to heaven I don't believe that's a salvation issue you can still go to heaven however you will go to heaven faster as a result of eating it now if that's what you want you know, and you want to do those things that are adverse to life, God knows how to save despite you doing all this nonsensical stuff and being ignorant of his ways. Um, thank goodness for his mercy, but that doesn't necessarily make him happy. And it seems to me that if I was getting ready to have to give an account to the one true judge, the one thing I don't want to do is offend him and to get him upset at me or mock him or treat him with disrespect and by the way when we sin as believers that's part of what we're doing we're taking his name in vain we claim to pronounce his name and claim to know his name and yet we don't do what he says and it's like saying I love you God and then turning around and doing exactly the opposite and God doesn't like the hypocritical point of view that we as men often have. And that's what's being expressed here by Isaiah. He's saying, you know that this stuff really irritates him. Let me continue here and we'll close out this paragraph. Verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into the bosom. Well, first of all, let's ask this question. Where is it written? You know, Isaiah says, Behold, it is written before me. And it's God. It's, it's God said, It's written before me. And if you go back to um, Exodus 34... If you go back to when Moses went back up on the mountain to get that second set of tablets, and he had asked God if he could see his glory, and God had said, you can't see me face to face, you'll die if you do. But he positioned him in the cleft of the rock, God came up into his presence, put his hand over his face, and then turned and they allowed him to see God from the backside, uh, and to see the glory of God from that position. And then God, in those two verses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, God gives 13 things, what we call the 13 attributes of God. He explained God. This is God explaining God to Moses. One of those 13 said, the guilty will not go unpunished. Okay, let me read this verse again. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. The guilty will not go unpunished. They're going to get it front at them, right at them. That's where it's not going to be off on the edge or a little bit. It's going to be right. It's going to confront them. And that's where the repayment will be. Verse 7. Both their own iniquities and the iniquities their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains, have scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Did you know that you're bearing the burden of your father's sins? Did you know that? It's not You're not autonomous on this earth. You you were brought into the world by your father and by his father and by his father and, and the sins they have done before, you bear some of the consequences of it. And by the way, when you sin, it will be born in your children. Blessings from a father extend to a thousand generations. Curses, the scripture says very clearly, can extend to the third and sometimes the fourth generation. So, look back three, four generations of fathers from you. Did they sin against God? What did they do? Because you're going to be paying part of the price. To punish them, their sons are going to be punished. We live in a world in the midst of all of this. Some people call the subject generational curses. I just say it's... it's it's. Which family you're born into has a lot to say about how life's going to be for you. If you have a good father and he obeys the Lord, you're going to get a lot of blessings. But there's still the possibility some curses in previous generations will still make their way down to you. In my life, I have no doubt about this. I have diabetes. My father had diabetes. My grandfather didn't live long enough to see if he had diabetes. And I'm not sure about my great-grandfather and where it is. But the sins that they did, whatever happened, have made their way down. One of the prayers that I've made before God is, Lord, whatever those curses are, let them end with me. Don't let my son or my grandsons have to deal with those. Give them a fair shake. End it with me. Let let it be ended here. And do that wonderful work of redemption and restoration that you can do. And so I've laid claim to that my Messiah was hung on a tree so that cur- the price of pur- curses could be paid. And I'm claiming that he paid the price for all the curses of my father's. Even though I have to endure them, I hope that none of them make it to my son or to my grandson. That is a spiritual law, a spiritual truth. You are not autonomous from the family that you were born from. It's all part of the great family of God, multiple generations. In, in the Hebrew colloquialism, we say, Lador, Lador, from generation to generation. And that's what we are. We, we are part of Abraham. Abraham is part of us for multiple generations that's the family of god all right we have come to the completion of our time we're going to begin our next uh, program on isaiah chapter 65 beginning at verse eight and we'll have that for our next episode and teaching shalom everyone